1 Kings chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord. For he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening. And he drank of the brook. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 9, and we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. For his name's sake, if I could call your attention in particular to verses 2 and 3. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is, before Jordan. We've noted already in our studies the suddenness with which Elijah bursts onto the scene. We're not told anything about him, are we, before he appears in this chapter. We don't have any information pertaining to his lineage. We don't know who his parents were. We know that he was from Gilead, a region to the east, and that he arises out of there. But it is with great suddenness, almost with a lightning strike, that he bursts onto the scene and he makes the bold announcement, there will be no dew nor rain, but according to his word. And I think it would be fair to say that Ahab would not hear Elijah's word on that subject of rain again until Elijah himself would hear the word from the Lord on that same subject. What I want you to see just now is that just as suddenly as Elijah bursts onto the scene, he just as suddenly disappears. Like he makes a, an appearance for a brief instant, has a very bold and brief announcement, and then he's gone. And I suppose at first it would have been easy for Ahab and those in his court to Laugh at the prophet. Who is this man coming into our court uninvited, unannounced, all on his own, making such an announcement as this? Who does he think he is? They might have asked. Do the reins obey the voice of a mere man? 
But then as time went on, and the dew and the rains continued to be withheld, there was undoubtedly a growing anxiousness in the minds and hearts of those in Ahab's court about this prophet. Apparently, his prophetic announcement was true because there was no dew or rain for upwards of three years. An interesting detail in the narrative that might seem to pose a problem on the surface of it. In 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 1, and we'll get there eventually, but we read there, and it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Underscore that phrase. The word came to him in the third year, saying, Go show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And then you compare that statement with the statement that the Lord Jesus made in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4 and verse 25, and that James in his epistle makes in James chapter 5 and verse 17, that says that the length of that drought was actually three years and six months. Three and a half years. The author of 1 Kings tells us that the drought was in its third year when the Lord sent rain, or when the Lord would send rain on the land again. So there seems to be, I suppose, to the cynic and to the skeptic, something which, uh, on the surface of it, would appear to be a contradiction. A.W. Pink offers what I think is a simple solution to what we might call this surface dilemma. He suggests, Pink does, that the drought would have been taking place for six months already before Elijah made his first appearance before Ahab. So it wasn't at that first appearance that the time of drought began. That drought would have been underway for six months at the very time that Elijah appeared before Ahab. And so it's as if Elijah is making the announcement then, you know, this drought that we've already been in for six months, it's going to continue. In fact, there will be no dew nor rain but at my word. So when Elijah announces no dew or rain, he was announcing the continuation of a drought that had begun some six months earlier. Be that as it may, the point I'm now making is that Elijah, with the same suddenness with which he appeared on the scene, disappeared with that same suddenness. And this, we know, was by the Lord's direction. Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. Now, we can draw a number of practical lessons from the example of Elijah in this instance. He shows us a very impressive example of submitting to the word of the Lord. He also shows us how in great measure the Christian life is a separated life. We're prone to think otherwise at times, especially when we think of some of the great men of the Bible. We think of them as leading eminent lives in which they are well known. Interesting to note, therefore, that Elijah spent the early years of his life in the obscurity of Gilead. 
And you can compare that with Moses, who spent 40 years of his life on the backside of the desert before he appeared to Pharaoh. And the Apostle Paul, who spent three years in Arabia before making his first appearance before the other apostles. And even Christ himself, who went for some 30 years in obscurity before making his first appearance, which would have been at his baptism. So we do well to note such patterns in the lives of eminent men in the Old and New Testaments. And I think it goes without saying that while they were, in a sense, separated from the world, they were not, they, they certainly were not separated from God. On the contrary, I think you would have to conclude of them, they were separated to God. Their times in obscurity, you see, would have been times in which they were shut in with God. And we do well, certainly, to imitate them in that practice. But what I'd like to do now in our study this morning is to view Elijah's time at the brook Cherith in terms of what his experience teaches us about God himself. I suppose you could call this perspective a theological perspective of the prophet's time at the brook. What then can we say about God when we view Elijah at the brook Cherith? That's the question that I want to raise and in the moments that remain answered this morning. Consider with me, first of all, that we can certainly say with regard to Elijah at the brook Cherith that the Lord leads. The Lord leads. We devoted our last study largely to this heading when we noted how often we find that statement that we find in verse 2 and again in verse 8, which says, And the word of the Lord came unto him, came unto Elijah, saying. And that's a statement that occurs throughout the narrative. You may recall that there was only one instance in which Elijah acted without having a word come to him from the Lord, and that is when he fled from Jezebel. There was no word from the Lord that told him to do that. Recall, if you will, from our last study, we considered that there was a sense in which the written word of the Lord would have come to Elijah. Now, we know, of course, that Elijah would have been very limited in what he had or knew of the written word of the Lord in his day. He would not obviously have had the New Testament as the time of the New Testament was still several centuries away. He would not have had many of the books of the Old Testament either, although he could have had the writings of Moses, and he may have been familiar with the Psalms of David. He could have also been familiar with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. We focused last week on that particular book, chapter, and verse in Deuteronomy where the Lord specifically mentions that during such times as when the nation would turn away from God, 
among the punishments that are listed for the nation in that terrible spiritual condition, there would be the withholding of the rain. You can find that in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 17, if you care to look that up. A.W. Pink, in his commentary on Elijah, suggests that Elijah knew that word and that he would have pleaded that very stipulation of the Mosaic Covenant in prayer before God until the Holy Spirit burned in his heart such an assurance that God would be true to his word that Elijah would then make the proclamation before Ahab, no dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And you remember what I said last week, and I will remind you of this often, because if there is one thing we need to grasp with regard to the prophet of Elijah, and one thing that we need to emulate and imitate with regard to the prophet Elijah, it would be that he was jealous for the honor of the Lord above all else. It's not to say that he was so cruel and hard-hearted that he would wish ill upon his people by having the rain withheld, knowing as he would know the hardship that would pose on his people, but he had an appreciation for the high crimes that were being committed against God, and he was jealous for God's honor. And I say that's a point that I want to emphasize throughout our studies of Elijah, because that is largely missing today in too many Christian circles. We are so self-focused. We become so sentimental in a sense that God's honor means little or nothing. So Elijah would have known and would have been led by the written word. But what we have in the narrative in chapter 17 and beyond is the word of the Lord coming to Elijah directly. Hence the statement, the word of the Lord came to him saying. So there was some pretty direct communication here, obviously, between the Lord and Elijah. And while we don't look for such direct, audible communications from the Lord today, we considered, nevertheless, how the Lord does lead and guide his people by his word and by his spirit. There's a verse, I think, that describes this spiritual experience very well. It's found in Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 21. It says there, And thine ears shall hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way, walk ye in it, when ye turn to the right hand and when ye turn to the left. We do, of course, have to be careful when it comes to what we might call the spiritual leading of the Lord. We have to be careful that we don't simply attribute every internal impulse to the Lord's leading. There are spiritual disciplines that must be maintained, especially the discipline of communing with the Lord. Time in the Word and time in prayer so that communing with the Lord is such a natural and consistent habit on the part of the child of God 
that he recognizes the Lord's leading. And just as sure as the Lord lives, he does lead and guide his people. You remember again, and I know I'm conducting a fair amount of review here, but the very foundation of communion with God is found in that statement made by Elijah when he says to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel liveth. No do or reign except by my word. The Lord God of Israel lives. We're not following cunningly devised fables, folks. We're not worshiping deities that we have invented. The Lord God of Israel lives. Now let me add one more thought to this heading, which we didn't cover last week. And that is that when the Lord leads us, he leads us, you could say, step by step. The word of the Lord did not disclose to Elijah that he would first go to the brook Cherith and then to a widow at Zarephath and then sometime after that to appear before Ahab again. No, he was directed rather to a specific place at that particular time. Get thee hence and turn thee eastward and hide thyself by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. I can remember many years ago now when I had the privilege of attending my very first week of prayer in Northern Ireland. We didn't even have weeks of prayer in North America at that time. Uh, we were really in our infant uh, stages. I was a student. Dr. Cairns took a couple of us students to the week of prayer in Northern Ireland. And I remember on this particular occasion, there was a, a preacher, an American preacher actually, who was there. And he was preaching from 1 Kings 17 on Elijah being led to the brook Cherith. And the preacher made much of the word there in verse 4. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. It would not have worked for Elijah to have gone to a place of his own choosing and expect that no matter where he went, he would be supernaturally provided for by the ravens. No, there was a particular appointed place that he had to go to in order to know the Lord's provision. I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. And so does it hold true today that the Lord leads his people, leads us in our lives step by step. I realize, of course, that this step-by-step -step leading of the Lord can at times be very frustrating. We want to see beyond the next step. We want to see as much of the big picture as we can. I'm afraid, however, that if the Lord went so far as to disclose to many of us what that bigger picture looked like, Oh, how many of us would become just like the prophet Jonah who would endeavor to run in the opposite direction of what the Lord told him to do and where to go. So it is in his sovereign wisdom, you could say, 
that the Lord leads his people step by step. We should note here also that not only was the brook Cherith the appointed place for Elijah to go, but the duration of his time there was also directed by the Lord. The time would come when the brook would dry up, and then the word of the Lord would come to Elijah again, directing him to the next step, which would take him to that widow in Zarephath. How often do we as Christians grow anxious for that next step? I remember when I moved my family to Greenville, South Carolina to attend BJU. My family at that time consisted of my wife and our first child who was on the way. Wasn't even born yet. And little did I suspect that such a step of moving to Greenville would last for nearly 10 years. I knew the whole time that Greenville was but a step. I never contemplated staying there very long. I was aware that my time there was only to be temporary and only for the purpose of training. But once I graduated from college and then graduated from our seminary, I became so anxious for the next step when it wasn't time for the next step. It became a painful lesson to my patience that the Lord's timetable does not conform to mine. And the Lord is never late, neither is he ever early. The Lord is always right on time. So in the case of Elijah, as in all our cases, the set time came for him to drop out of sight and get him hence to a very specific place for a very specific time. May he grant to us the needed patience as we wait on him for the next step, and may we learn to take advantage of all he has for us when the time before that next step seems to be a long time. There are things that the Lord may have for you to learn. There are things that the Lord may have for you to do before that next step comes. So the first theological lesson of the brook Cherith is that the Lord leads. Next lesson is that the Lord protects. The Lord leads and the Lord protects. Note again the specific instructions that the Lord gives to Elijah regarding the brook Cherith. Get thee hence and turn thee eastward and hide thyself by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. Elijah was to be concealed or hidden in this location where the Lord directed him. I mentioned in my introduction that it's quite possible that at first King Ahab and his counselors probably didn't place a lot of stock in Elijah's announcement that there would be no rain. It's not hard to picture Ahab and his court laughing at the prophet's announcement while mocking the prophet himself. But as time went on and the rains didn't come, 
and the drought became more severe, and the resources of food and water became more scarce, it would seem, wouldn't it, that Ahab's view of Elijah changed. No longer was he a man of God to be mocked with a message to be scoffed at. No, over time, he was an enemy to be apprehended. We've got to find this man. We've got to arrest this man. He's got to be brought back here so that he can deliver us from this drought that we suffer from. We haven't reached the point in the narrative yet, but if you look with me at chapter 18, you come to the time when Elijah was directed to appear before Ahab again. And on his way to seek out Ahab, he first meets up with one of Ahab's counselors. This is a man by the name of Obadiah, who is called the governor of Ahab's house. Obadiah is the one that reports to Elijah just how intense King Ahab's rage has become toward Elijah. So we read in chapter 18 and verse 10, As the Lord thy God liveth, this is Obadiah now talking to Elijah, As the Lord thy God liveth, there is no nation or kingdom whither my Lord hath not sent to seek thee, and when they said, He is not there, he took an oath of the kingdom and nation that they found thee not. That's really a rather telling picture, isn't it, of how intensely King Ahab was seeking out Elijah. He would go so far as to require an oath of those various kingdoms that Elijah was not there. Now it's interesting to Locate the brook Cherith on a Bible map. Takes a little effort, but it can be done. To the south, and, and you'll know this even with, that, with little or no uh, geography knowledge of Israel or that region, I, I'm sure you can probably picture in your minds that to the south you have what today is known as the Dead Sea, and to the north, further north, you have what is called the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River runs from the one to the other and connects them both. And about halfway between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, you have this brook Cherith. It's not really all that much of a remote location, as you might expect, for a hiding place for Elijah. But he was never found there. I don't know that I could go, go so far as to say that Elijah was, in a sense, hiding in plain sight. But on the other hand, he didn't have to do what King David did at an earlier time in the history of Israel, which was to flee to the land of the Philistines in order to hide from King Saul. God, you see, became Elijah's refuge and high tower, his protection. Psalm 46, which provided Martin Luther the text of his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Listen to how that psalm begins and to the emphasis that is placed on God as our refuge. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 
Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, Selah, that's in the first three verses, little further down that same psalm, Psalm 46, verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah, Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. Or in other words, the Lord is our protector. He is our refuge, and we are safe in him. Now, if you think carefully about other parts of the narrative of Elijah, you might find yourself facing something of a perplexing dilemma. Sure, Elijah was protected by God, wasn't he? Go and hide yourself by the brook, and God saw to it that nobody found him. He was concealed. He was not discovered. But can the same thing be said for many of the other prophets of the Lord? Call to mind, if you remember the story of Elijah, that discussion I referenced a moment ago between Elijah and King Ahab's governor, Obadiah. Obadiah, we are told, is one that feared the Lord greatly, chapter 18 and verse 3. And when Elijah comes across his path, he says to Elijah in verse 13, Was it not told my Lord what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. You catch that statement of Obadiah about Jezebel? She slew the prophets of the Lord. And the implication is that she slew a lot of them. Obadiah was able to hide a hundred of them by fifty in a cave, but the implication is that there were many, many more that he didn't hide who fell prey to Jezebel's wickedness. Well, what about those prophets? Was the Lord a refuge to them? And what about many others over the course of the history of the church that were persecuted and slain? during the Dark Ages. And in that great faith chapter of the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, we read of the exploits that many uh, of the Lord's servants did by faith, but then the whole thing turns when you get to uh, uh, verse 36, and it says uh, of others that they had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. The author writes in Hebrews 11, verses 36 to 38, Well, what are we to make then of the Lord's protection for his people when we read statements like those? Is the Lord a refuge to some, but not to others? Well, not at all. 
And I think the solution to what only appears on the surface to be a dilemma is resolved. Resolved, for example, when you visit a scene in Acts chapter 7, where you have the account of Stephen being put to death by the angry Jewish mob. As they gnashed on him with their teeth, we read in verse 55, but he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul, And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Oh, here stands the Lord waiting to receive his martyr, Stephen. And such is the sense of his acceptance by Christ that Stephen, even though he was treated cruelly and unjustly, could nevertheless ask the Lord not to lay that sin to their charge. There's a verse in the book of Revelation that has always amazed me. I suppose there might be any number of amazing verses in that book but one in particular that I find very striking. It's in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11, and it reads of those on earth that overcome the devil when the devil is cast down to earth, and it reads like this, and they, those on earth, okay, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Underscore that statement. They loved not their lives unto the death. I sort of designated that verse as a goal in life verse for me. Lord, let me reach that place. Let me reach that place in my walk with the Lord where I love not my own life even unto death. And I used to read that verse with wonder and awe and astonishment, and I would wonder how such a level of spirituality could ever be obtained. And then I found the answer sometime later, when I wasn't really searching for it, but I happened to come across Psalm 63 and verse 3, where the psalmist writes, Because thy loving kindness is better than life, My lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. The psalmist had found something better than life. Certainly better than the life that we live in this sin-cursed world. And you hear what he is saying is better than life itself. It's the loving kindness of the Lord. Because thy loving kindness is better than life. 
certainly better than the life in this sin-cursed world where we struggle against infirmities and besetting sins. This, then, is where we take our refuge in the loving kindness of Christ. Or perhaps more literally, in the covenant faithfulness of Christ. And when this becomes our place of refuge, because we are convinced in the depth of our souls that Jesus is with us and Jesus is for us and nothing can come between us, we are able to affirm with Paul what he writes in Romans chapter 8, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, when the love of Christ is a reality to your soul and your heart is filled to overflowing in the truth and reality of it, the fear of death vanishes. Perfect love, John writes, casts out all fear. And I think you find that exemplified by Stephen in Acts chapter 7, and by those saints on earth in Revelation chapter 12. So we take our refuge in the love of Christ. I can remember years ago, living down in Greenville, working in a print shop, talking to a man there who worked with me. We were on the topic of persecution. And he was saying to me, I honestly don't think I could take it. Boy, if you, if you tied me to a stake and sent that pile on fire, I'm, I'm climbing to the top of that stake. And I said to him, no, you aren't. I said, if the heavens are open to you the way they were open to Stephen, if the love of Christ is shed abroad in your heart by his spirit, and you have the perception of that love, it, it, it's not just something you affirm academically as part of your creed, but you know in truth in your heart, you will say to those guys, light the fire, I have an appointment to keep. I'm going to be with my Lord. And how anxious I am to meet him at the appointed time. That's where we take our refuge in these days. So what does the brook cherith teach us? It teaches us that the Lord leads. It teaches us that the Lord protects. Finally and briefly, the brook cherith teaches us, this is perhaps the most obvious lesson, that the Lord provides. He leads, he protects, he provides. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. We may look on such statements as these and marvel, as well we should, at how the Lord rules over his sovereign creation and can utilize his creation to go against its nature, which is what you find here in the case of 
Ravens providing bread to Elijah twice a day. Ravens, you see, just don't do that. But in this case, they did. Because they're under the Lord's sovereign control. From a spiritual perspective, though, I'm reminded of how the Lord feeds his people with a never-ending supply of grace through his word. We have bread to eat that the world knows nothing about. We have drink that nourishes us in a way that the world finds repugnant. So we read those words of Christ from verse 54 to 58. Now I'm reading. I'm going ahead of what we read, actually where Christ says, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. I love that hymn that we sung earlier in the service. I have to admit, I have to guard myself from singing it too often. There is a land of pure delight. And the refrain goes, we are feeding on the living bread. We are drinking at the fountainhead. And whoso drinketh, Jesus said, shall never, never thirst again. I wonder this morning, are you feeding on that living bread? Are you drinking at that fountainhead? To those that know Christ, they will never, never thirst again. So let's affirm the theological lessons then of the brook of Cherith this morning. The Lord leads, the Lord protects, and the Lord provides. Let's close then in prayer. Let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee that thou dost indeed lead and guide and protect and provide because Jesus Christ is that great shepherd of the sheep. We thank you, Lord, that you gave your life for the sheep and we thank you that we can find refuge in thy love, so much so that we can say to the world, throw at us your worst. We know that our Savior accepts us and that we are joined to him. So Lord, may we learn these lessons well and live by them, even in such days as these. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.